Asian families, right? You get a lot of influence into certain careers, isn't it? You're either a lawyer, engineer, a doctor, or a bailiff. So that's it. You're listening to Guest of Honor, and I'm your host, Nimesha Sharad. Guest of Honor is a weekly podcast featuring people from various walks of life living all over the world. Tune in as I catch up with baristas, surgeons, writers, nurses, and people from many more professions. My guests and I talk about the cities they live in, the work they do, their defining relationships, and finally the impact they're having in the most interesting fields, leaving you a little less bored and a little more informed. This is a podcast you never knew you needed. In today's episode, we have Dr. Ishan Vijayvardhana from London. I'd like to call Ishan a doctor-turned-corporate strategist. Having studied medicine, to becoming a management consultant, co-founding a wearable devices startup, and finally entering the mental health space with a company of his own, Ishan has a lot to share. And I've asked him many, many questions about this. He has so much to share that I had to break the podcast into two. In part one, we talk about being from South Asian families, what it's like to study medicine in London, starting up in the mental health space and startups in general. So without further ado, hi Ishan, thank you so much for being on my podcast. This feels super formal. Usually when we talk, it's <laughs> it's pretty informal, but hey, we got to do what we got to do. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hi, Dimitri. No, thank you very much for having me. Um, hope you guys are doing well. It's uh, well in London anyway. It's a nice Sunday evening, which is very nice, you know. That's <laughs> and really the weather nice. is good as well. So great. Yeah, having a good time. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Has the has yeah. summer started in London? Yeah, summer has started. Been going for I would say about a month, but it never really fully kicks in until around July, August time. So I, I consider myself fairly lucky so far <laughs> to have a bit of sunshine, you know, in the, in May. So that's good. So Ishan, for the listeners, we met during a boot camp that we attended in Boston at yeah. um, MIT. I guess it was a, com- a combined effort by MIT and Harvard, and we ended up taking part in this um, week-long uh, boot camp about um, innovation in healthcare. So it's nice. safe to say that both of us are interested in this area, and we would talk for hours about it. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, so I guess um, to get started off, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, where you grew up and things like that, which also could include your favorite flavor of ice cream, you know? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, my favorite flavor of ice cream is uh, chocolate chip cookie, but yeah, so let's just get that out of the way, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I guess kind of to your to your audience, um, yeah, I'm, I'm currently running my own health tech company. Um, it's a voice technology product, um, which is helping the carers and the elderly um, and the people that the carers care for, so typically the elderly, um, to improve them and the way they care for their their loved ones. But yeah, before all of that, I guess kind of my story is I trained as a doctor. I spent studying six years, started practicing. And during that time, I felt I could have had a much bigger impact outside of one-to-one patient care. And that was what prompted my move into management consulting and spent three years as a consultant advising um, chief execs of health and social care systems all across in the UK. Um, and outside in Europe as well. And post that, I started to realize the impact that technology can have within healthcare and made my way into working with startups and initially started advising a few startups on how they can bring their products to market, especially in a clinical setting. And on the back of that now, I 
I personally run the operations for a wearable startup, which I can talk in great length about afterwards. Um, when we are technically in the sleep space, uh, we've been help people manage their their sleep and we help them get better sleep and relaxation um, through uh, audio and listen to audio through headphones and I can't do I run the operation for that startup alongside finding my own one in the voice technology space. I hope that was a nice short and sweet summary. <laughs> oh absolutely yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on all of it little by little now. Okay. <laughs> so going back to uh, the fact that you were you started off as a, a doctor and by the traditional in the traditional sense you would um, i assume treat patients right in a hospital yeah. and then so what made you take that up in the first place oh i think no so that's a very interesting question because i think what whenever i when i started medicine and this was all the way back now uh, almost yeah, 2008 now and before you even start applying classically to universities to go in this path of becoming a um a doctor you need to start that process of thinking about what kind of careers that you want to do at a very young age and i was and even now to this day i stand by actually to make such big career decisions early on in someone's life without having really experienced much in life right you're telling like 16 17 year olds let's make a big decision about what you want to do for the rest of your life right now and actually you probably have the least amount of experience in the point of view of experience in different cultures tastes languages whatever life experiences in your whole life and so at that time, I felt when at that age, I felt, okay, I wanted to make a difference. Um, I wanted to have an impact on the world. And I wanted to do that in a very positive way as much as possible. And so a lot of my friends were moving into medicine. I had a couple of guys who had dreams of becoming doctors since a very young age. And, and I, I still know guys, these guys up to these, this day. And I felt I started exploring the career of medicine a bit more. I did a bit of shadowing, um, a bit of speaking to more doctors in the space and they, they seemed very fulfilled in what they were doing in their careers. And then, yeah, that prompted my move to get into medicine. And this was, yeah, way back in 2008. And even though I don't practice one-to-one -one patient care right now, I would still probably say that if, if I will go back in time and make a decision as to what I want to do as an 18-year-old, I'll probably end up doing the same thing, which is go ahead and study medicine. So it's started to become a, become a doctor because I think that journey that a lot of um, – clinicians go through is just one of the most rewarding experiences they can have in your life. So, absolutely. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, Did you have any doctors in the family? No, no. So, um, no, I didn't have any doctors in the family. So I was actually one of the first in the family to become a doctor. Uh, but I think what you classically see in Asian families, right? You get a lot of influence into certain careers, isn't it? You're either a lawyer, engineer, a doctor, or a failure. So that's how, that's <laughs> how everyone puts it. <laughs> so even since a very young age, I remember still having a lot of conversations with my mom and dad, and they would tell, talk about how people in the healthcare industry, doctors, nurses, will be doing such great service to the community. And I think that brushes off, off on you as well, because you start to think, Oh, well, you start to see the world in the same eyes as your parents see that, right? And so, yeah, I would say, yeah, I, I was still the first in the family to go ahead and study medicine. Um, and yeah, that's, I think even up, even up until this day, there's no one else in my family studying medicine still. So clearly I didn't go do a good job of influencing the rest of my family studying medicine. You probably <laughs> went the other way and you're like, don't do it, it's a trap. Yeah, yeah, that's that's classically. Well, yeah, that's what I would say, anyways. <laughs> I think 
you you mentioned something really important i guess those early years you sort of just live to make your parents proud or not even proud you're just like i need this validation from parents because at that stage they're probably the only figures whom you sort of look up to right um so was there some particular um speciality that you wanted to also take which you thought maybe your parents thought was cool yeah so i think my parents yeah it's interesting to talk about um trying to make my parents proud and i think during that time especially at you that young age your your parents mean everything to you right uh, but also classically what you see in asian cultures is that community what your community thinks of you as well their perception of you that's um a lot of people think the world of that right and they think of very highly of what other people perceive of you which now comes to this day um I, i believe that that should be the way people should be making decisions in life but nevertheless back then at that such a young age yeah i mean one of the main influences of influences for me to get into medicine was actually yeah, to make uh, my parents proud uh, my sister proud my community uh, looked looked very, very high up in my community and I, i don't necessarily think those are bad things especially if you are if your community is making you go into a direction or path which is actually going to have a quite a positive impact on society itself so it's not necessarily a bad thing um but it's probably not the best way <laughs> to go about making decisions at such a young age of course Help me understand how uh, studying medicine is structured in the UK. How many years do you put into the process? Yeah, so classically, and it hasn't changed much. I would say the last twenty years or so, and it's classically a five-year degree in uh, in the UK with an additional add-on degree where you add on year where you can do um, a bit a bit of research as well and complement that with your clinical practice. And a lot, and I would say education when it comes to Uh, medical education in the UK is pretty good. Um, there's a lot of mixture of what we would call the basic clinical sciences, which is a textbook, lectures, heavy work of understanding the concepts inside out of medicine and surgery. And then there's also the clinical practice of it and the application of it in the clinical setting, a lot of shadowing your peers, a lot of speaking to other colleagues, the allied health professionals um, in, in the NHS. Um, and yeah, you pretty much... over the course of the five years what you do in terms of your textbook and studying comes down and your clinical practice itself which is going on to the wards shadowing and speaking to patients that increases up until you get into your final year where pretty much your whole year you're almost practicing as a qualified doctor so if you want to after this uh, 5 plus 1 years you can do your post graduation or you can start practicing medicine right away Yeah no so I think in yeah after after you finish university degree a lot of guys go on to start their junior uh, foundation training right so which is a two year program every medic in the country has to do this two year program and then afterwards during that program you get your medical registration and then you're officially qualified as a doctor um in the UK you get a med- medical registration license and then after that during those first two years you get to do a whole broad mixture of um different placements you, you keep a very general in terms of you don't really specialize during those years but you can start to figure out um and this starts kind of during medicine as well you start to figure out what areas of specialties are you particularly interested in and then on the back of that after you finish those two years um you can start applying to specialty training and that very much depends in the UK on what specialty you go into the specialty training differs a lot right so Altogether, training in the UK becomes you start to realize a lot of doctors go through almost fifteen to twenty years of their life training to become fully qualified surgeons, consultants in their specific specialties, and 
imagine trying to make that decision when you're a 17 year old in school and you have no idea what you're in for right <laughs> i mean i know a lot of doctors they feel fulfilled in what they do they enjoy what they do but you speak to 70 percent of doctors a lot of studies have come out recently where 70 percent of the nhs workforce and doctors specifically have felt burnt out and they have to balance their training as well as their day-to-day -day clinical work with their patients and no wonder you see a lot of doctors who suddenly would say well i didn't think this was going to take this long it's not as how i imagined it back five years ago so for me i want to do something completely different and you see that so you see that a lot actually uh, within medicine itself right so it's so you have five years and then one year and then two years and then after that uh, another set of specializations depending on which area you want to go to so at what yes. stage of this did you decide to make a shift to get out of this process yeah so for me it started very early and i think when while i was in medical school itself um i started to realize one-to-one -one patient care wasn't really for me and that was mainly because i didn't feel like i could have had an impact within healthcare itself on a one-to-one -one level i wanted more have more of an impact on a population and system level mm -hmm. and to be able to become an operator of healthcare systems is very different to someone who's providing clinical patient care one-to-one -one on in their specific areas of the hospital. It requires a, a different skill set, a different way of thinking, um, but the experiences, of course, are very tangible between both, right? And I started exploring those type of careers and started having conversations of operators of healthcare systems very early uh, during my five, uh, during the six years that I spent studying medicine. And the advice that I got straight away from everyone was that the, the earlier you make that jump into operation, healthcare operations, um, the, the better it is for your career. And so I finished my six years and then spent a year training um, as a, as a, on, uh, I started my foundation training in the UK. And then after the year, I made the jump um, and I, yeah, I started uh, I started working for a management consulting firm straight away after that first year. So early on, actually, in the process. But still, that was, if you look back, and it's still um, seven years invested um, in clinical practice, right? What, what is clear is that, what was clear with the advice that was given to me is that the longer you go in your training program, the, the more specialized you become, the more niche your skill set becomes as well. And so you become almost less malleable into different other different careers. And so that's that advice kind of stuck with me and I had a mentor of mine at, at that stage who I actually did some research uh, with my mentor in my third year of medicine as well and they mentioned well if you want to do this John you just go ahead and start early make sure you set those goals and then you can create your own path right from the beginning so early on in the career for me right so you sort of uh, jumped at the right time you'd say yeah, yeah. before you yeah I mean, yeah, I mean, I feel like I feel looking back now, I wouldn't change anything in that journey. I feel like it was the right time for me as well. And I think because I left such at an earlier time as well, I still had that knowledge of how healthcare systems operate, how one-to-one -one patient care works, and but still had the drive and the vision that I needed to be able to forge a new career in a completely different area, uh, which you you almost need to start from ground zero to build the new skill sets in those specific areas, right? So you got into management consulting, and I'm sure, obviously, it's a completely new space for you, right? Even though you're applying what you know, it's like what you need to deliver is something which is not what you need to deliver in a hospital, obviously. So 
tell me some things that you like were shocked about or which you know took you back and you're like wait hold up i need i need some time to process this yeah yeah well i think when you go through medicine itself you start to realize that actually you can have a lot of impact on that individual in front of you right and that impact that let's say when you you when someone comes into your ae you go ahead and speak to the patient and they tell you these are the symptoms you have a thing you, you do a couple of tests this is the diagnosis this is the treatment and then you see that actually from start to finish sometimes by the end of that journey you've made someone's life better they can leave leave you and they thank you and they say you know um thank you for all the support they've given me and in help in treating this problem for me and as you can imagine um that's quite an emotional journey right but also it's something which a lot of people can find fulfilling and it is fulfilling to have that impact on a person's life right and i would say outside of healthcare settings you can't really have that feeling anymore and the challenges are i wouldn't lessen them outside of medicine the challenges are very different um but it's not on the same fulfilling level that you could you could imagine as that one to one making the one to one difference between you and a patient when you're in healthcare. So when I moved into management consulting, that was kind of one of the biggest surprises that I felt. Whereas in medicine, if my task was, okay, go and speak to those three patients there in A&E right now and figure out what we need to do with them, the challenge here would be, okay, tomorrow we need to go and see the CEO of one of the largest healthcare providers in the east of England. And we need to tell them that the operate within your healthcare operations, there's X, Y, Z problems. We need to make a change now. Otherwise, you're putting a lot of people's lives at risk by not providing the right treatment for those patients at the right time. So it's a different kind of challenge. You don't really see the impact of that patient on the ground, whereas we did a lot of work sometimes even speaking to some of the patients to see if the systems and processes that we made during the work when we worked with health and, health and social care providers made a difference. So we did a lot of work behind that as well. But you don't see that straight away. You have to actually go and search for it. And I think something that also comes with a, a whole career outside of clinical practice as well you get all these new different pressures right um, some of the skills are the same such as you're still working in small teams you still work into tight deadlines but your challenge now will be to convince a lot of um, senior leaders in the space to make changes to operations to convince them that there's a problem but also a lot of the time we the the, the people that we advise for they also wanted a lot of support in bringing change on the ground so we would actually make recommendations but also go ahead and help um, the senior leaders in healthcare systems get on the ground and actually make the changes to their operations that we promised and that was another challenge which is you don't realize sometimes when you're doing one-to-one -one patient care you could be working in a way which is probably not that efficient from a whole system point of view of how the healthcare process is run and you may not even see that when you do one-to-one -one patient care. But if you take a step back, the person taking the step back can observe that entire process and thing and see those problems. Right. So did you always know that you wanted to start up when you made the shift? Um, so do you mean like starting up uh, my own thing, is it? Yeah, because you, you are starting up right now. Did you, did you mm. always know that eventually you'd want to start something of your own and you wanted maybe some more experience in the space? Was it like that or... Did you stumble upon uh, an idea and now you're yeah. starting up? Um, I think I kind of stumbled upon the idea, actually. I didn't go into it thinking I, I'm going to go ahead and start up something in the space. I was always a problem solver. Um, I was always enjoyed solving problems, helping other people solve problems. And for me, I continue to see a lot of problems within healthcare itself during my time as a consultant. And 
the interesting thing about consulting is you work on a project basis. On a project basis, you see different clients all the time, but you'll classically see with, and I remember seeing it, doing almost 15 to 20 projects during my time, a lot of the same problems come up. And so you'll be surprised. Well, I was surprised to see, well, I would go to one part of the UK, work with a healthcare provider there, X problems come up, go to a different provider or a different area in the UK, the same problems come up. And then over after about 10, 15 different projects, you realize all these guys are going through the same problem. And that's when I realized, well, actually to solve some of these issues, it probably the most efficient way is not to make maybe do that as a management consultant itself and go ahead and work on individual projects, but it's actually try and bring that almost system-wide, nationwide change. And that's what kind of influenced me to start thinking about, well, there are certain ways that we do things and there are certain things, even as management consultants, we didn't use, we barely use any technology. We barely advise our clients to use specific products, devices, softwares to improve their healthcare operations. And I started to think, well, there's a big opportunity to do that. Um, there was a few specific areas within um, healthcare that I was interested in. And I thought, okay, this was now, now felt like the right time to do that. Fair enough. So coming to the startup part of your journey, I think it's a really interesting space, right? Which is mental health. A lot of people are talking about it these days and it's in, it's in the news, it's in the media, very up and coming space to make a value and create an impact. And you chose to pick uh, loneliness and loneliness among the elderly. Now, I'm curious about why you chose to be in this space, because I did a bit of background reading and it looks like according to a World Health Survey, which I'm totally going to believe at the moment, um, says that amongst the people in this survey, which was greater parts of uh, Europe and USA, uh, the most affected segment, uh, you know, by loneliness were Gen Z, followed by millennials, followed by boomers and the lot. So the elderly was actually the last segment which was affected by loneliness on a day-to-day basis. But that's in fact the segment you chose to pick. So I'd like to know whether this was something you stumbled upon. You must have had some personal experience to pick this. And I understand it's not driven by market research for sure. So tell me more about that. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's it's probably even both of that, actually. I think when I was even in medicine um, and my time consultant, some of the biggest issues that even to this day, our healthcare systems are going through is actually providing mental health care um, efficiently and in an organized fashion, but also social care as well. And the challenge with social care comes from an aging population and a lot more people are aging. They need a lot more support at home or to remain healthy at home. And we have this growing demand for social care, which is and a need which isn't being met. So what you'll find is a lot of elderly vulnerable people who classically come into hospital their independence has decreased and they will go into the community back into their own homes without enough support or the, the right amount of support that will make sure that they remain at the same level of independence or the independence if not improves so what you would see is the independence decreases and yet that came through a lot of working with nurses physiotherapists occupational therapists on the ground when i was a management consultant and seeing those problems firsthand and how it impacted um, some of the patients as well and there'll be times when i will actually go in um, and speak to some of the patients and i remember this one individual calling george um, for this time and he's he came into hospital and he suffered he, he had a heart attack came in and had a coronary bypass and when when he was leaving the hospital his independence was significantly lowered and they were applying 
The hospital team were applying for some social care. They were requesting funding from the council to get social care for him, to help him with his daily meals, to help him with moving about at home. And just to put those things in place, it took almost two weeks. And and he was perfectly fine. He Medically, he was treated in hospital, but he couldn't actually go home until that support, that package of care was actually in place for him at home. And I saw a lot of frustration, especially when I was speaking to him. Um, and he... His biggest fear was that I can go home right now. Um, let's say even if I have these people coming and helping me and providing this care for uh, at me at home, I still don't feel like I'll be safe <laughs> going home. And so for me, that was quite a sad, sad moment actually. And what was what was even more fascinating for me was that actually this is not an isolated problem. A lot of people go through this, um, and it's not just in the UK, all across the world. Social care, providing social care has become one of the biggest priorities and one of the biggest problems for a lot of families all across the world. Um, so that was an interesting area for me. Mental health um, also came about on, on the back of that, actually, through these conversations, because what you start to realize is that a lot of elderly people in these kind of situations, they, they feel isolated because they do have people who come and they help them out at home. A lot of people may have lost contact with their families. Um, they would love to go and reach back out to their families, but they don't have the right tools to be able to do that. And what you would find is was a couple of individuals that I remember speaking to who said that they'd spoken to a single person for over two weeks. And and that's not that includes nobody. That doesn't even include their families. And so I try to put myself in that situation and start to realize, well, if I go through a period of two weeks without speaking to anyone, right, I know personally that I will go crazy, right? So there's a lot of elderly people out there who've lost their independence, who are going through a lot of well, mental health kind of challenges, let's say. And this is a very, very vulnerable community out there that I think needs needs the help where they can get it. I see. So you have isolated the problem. So what is the solution that your startup is proposing? Yeah, so... Currently, we're building uh, a personal device called Eva, which is essentially a smart speaker with an voice assistant. Now, for us, when I went to speak to a lot of um, individuals in care homes and went and also spoke to some of the families of the individuals in care homes, a family, something that the family would always tell me was that we would love to be more involved um, in the care for my father, my mother. But the problem is these guys live far away to me and... I also have a very busy life. I have my own childcare, my own uh, jobs that I need to look after as well. So how can we bridge that distance when it comes to caregiving? And so the inspiration came on the back of that, which is speaking to a number of different families. Um, and a lot of the individuals who were the care recipients as well, as a lot of them will tell us they would love the involvement of their families. They're more involved of their families within their own care as well. And so we thought, okay, how can we break through this distance? And for us, voice technology came up as one of the most interesting areas in order to break that distance. So essentially how the product will work is um, it's a smart speaker tailored to uh, almost like a, a mobile app. The smart speaker will be based in the care recipient's home and then the family will have access to that smart speaker through a mobile app. And what they can do is they can schedule voice reminders, things such as, a good example would be the, the, the father needs to take some medications three times a day. The family can actually set up voice reminders for three different periods in the day in 
it doesn't just have to be one member of the family three to four different members of the family can create voice messages and they can schedule those voice messages so that play them so that the loved one can actually hear them um, in their own setting and what we started to realize is that the, the the guys who were receiving the voice messages they actually felt number one there was a lot of especially if they were taking multiple medications during the day, they were more likely to take the medications. They were more likely to be reminded to take the medications. And as a result of that, take the medications. But then also hearing the voice of your own family telling you to do specific things or even sending you messages such as good morning or good afternoon helped them feel significantly better. And even if they had to, at the end of the day, get on the phone and speak to their family, they felt way more comfortable doing that. And so... By putting something in our view was very simple, simple system in place to bring closer together the families and the ones they care for. Felt like yes, we're we're contributing in terms of how um, these individuals care for and helping these guys become more independent at home, but also on the side of bringing families closer together, making the making families more present in their own homes, and actually that leads to like a more more positive outlook for them as well. So, yeah, so that that's what we're currently doing with Eva. Wow, this is really interesting. It's, I guess nobody thought about um, bridging the gap, really. Everyone just thought, okay, uh, we should make um, elderly care as nice as possible by giving them a really comfortable bed, by giving them, you know, a nice food maybe in the, in the facility or maybe a good nurse to take care of them. But really what they want is to be close to their families. And I'm sure even the families also want to be close to them, but they just don't have that kind of bandwidth. But this is a really interesting way to bridge the gap. And it's it's not even something fancy with um, an AI or anything. It's it's um, which would actually yeah, be true. very artificial as as the name sounds. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think, no, do you know, Nimisha, you're so right there because what we classically see, especially in the social care setting when it comes to trying to improve the efficiency of how we provide care for the elderly population we see things like exactly what you say devices out there which cost a high very high production value you have teams working on robots to come and help individuals in the in their own homes and i mean i'm not trying to take the value out of them but sometimes i think even that the, there are the simplest solutions out there that can help people feel much better but also have a much more positive impact on their care as well and yeah, like you say, our, we, we have a long-term aim of where we want to take Eva. And we see that going into uh, becoming this all-encompassing um, personal audio companion, which allows for bi-directional conversations. There may be an element of AI in there where people can start engaging with Eva, ask them questions, ask for support. But at the crux of it for us was what was a very simple way to just use the voices of their own family to help the person receiving the care feel much better about themselves, but also to improve the care that they received as well. And yeah, this seemed like a very simple way of doing it. At this stage of the company, how many people are you targeting to sell the product to? And is it uh, just based on market research in, in the UK at the moment? Yeah, so I think for us, we yeah we're we're in the process of developing the product, um, and we're we've done a lot of the market research, but we it never really finishes. And I think for us, we're going to keep our experiments small. And what I think is important for us is to actually prove through specific um, uh, studies, controlled studies, to actually that 
distance that we're creating has a better impact on someone's mental health, but also a better impact on the care that they receive. And so for us, we're initially going to be targeting the UK. We're going to be targeting specific groups in the UK, uh, individuals in care homes, and we're going to be running initial trials to prove that the concept works and we can clinically clinically validate those as well through a few published studies. Um, so that will probably be our main aim first before we move in anywhere else. And I think that comes more from a, my own uh, personal opinion of that. I, a lot of the time we see a lot of products, especially in the health tech market broadly, which are unproven, which they get a lot of hype, a lot of funding and money as well on the back of this great, amazing idea. But because they're not really proven when it comes to patient outcomes, when it comes to helping healthcare professionals, you see a lot of those going fail. So for me, all of that starts with actually understanding the clinical need and the patients outright. And for that, this sounded like the best way for me to do it. And we, we're gonna start doing that right from the outset, which is, and we learned this in our bootcamp as well, right? Know your customer, know the problem, and you need to know this inside out. So us starting here seemed like the right way to go. Right, so more than anything else, right now your focus is to be able to be proved right saying that yes. this uh, the system in place will actually positively impact the uh, elderly person's mental health. And yeah. you are following certain published studies in order to do that, right? Like you need to, okay, yeah. that's really good. Because I'm sure that you the next round would be um, everything goes well and fingers crossed it, it, it the outcomes are good. And then you'll probably yeah. be up for asking for funding, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that would be the aim. I think I would... I'm someone who always likes to get things changed or receive a lot of feedback. So from the outset, I, I would actually like if customers and uh, during this research actually comes up and says, we don't like these things, we want these things changed. So for me, I would consider that actually a win other than, you know, in the case where actually everything is fine. Yes, we've proven that this is this actually works. Um, but yeah, so I, I would prefer the other one. But as in terms of a goal for us, especially over by the end of the year yes by the end of the year is we, we need to have the prototype working we need to have it already clinically validated through uh, control studies and then by the end of that we'll be start looking to some uh, form of funding to actually take us into the, the, the mass market so that's the aim so far is this is this a common pattern with uh, most healthcare startups first uh, you come up with the idea then you do user study i would say with maybe um, some prototypes and then you need to prove the outcome through a trial or something? Well, no is the answer. <laughs> um, I think, and I think this comes more from personal preference than from what I've seen in the market landscape. I think, yeah, classically from the entrepreneur side of me is actually saying, well, why don't we just do a couple of online surveys and then customers tell us, these are perfectly fine, great, let's move it forward. And if this was anything other than something which is tailored to the healthcare market, I would probably be, fairly happy with that, you know? And I think what you would see is a lot of guys, especially people who haven't had the healthcare background and they were trying to bring products into the healthcare market, they do try to go down this way without actually doing any uh, real proof of or pr clinical validation. And in some, in some cases, they've actually turned out really well. Um, but I would say in a lot of those cases, because the concept hasn't been proved, those, the, the, the products are not widely accepted into the market. Healthcare professionals almost shun a lot of these products. They don't like them because they haven't been brought on board on the journey. And when you actually go on to measure the clinical outcomes 
uh, for individuals who are using these products as well. If this is something which is a patient-facing product, then you would find a lot of these um, products do not work. Um, and so for me, because based on my experience of so far, I've seen a lot of innovation in, in within the UK healthcare, health, healthcare system anyway, seen a lot of that innovation, I felt that right from the outset, proving something that was clinically validated is something and proving that it works uh, for our customers was, it was a very important part of it very important part of it and that's why i personally decided to take the company in that, that direction which obviously means that the journey to um innovation it takes slightly longer i wouldn't say it's ridiculously longer but i think it's a necessary move in the healthcare industry where you where in other industries you see a lot of fast pace a lot of products out there but none which actually prove that it, it, none which have been clinically validated and prove that it works for patients Okay. Seem like the safest thing to do as well. Of course, you you'll always have science backing you. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> so you're you're balancing your job right now as well as starting the company. Yeah. So how's yeah. that like? Oh man, that's tough. <laughs> and you have a toddler at home. I do. Yeah, she. Yeah, uh, Maya, the little gem. She she's now seven months. Seven. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, balancing all those three things is difficult. It means sleep just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is something that everyone goes through, right? And I think also this came from our experience at MIT as well when we're doing that bootcamp. Any, anything that, you know, that you feel passionate about and want to bring to the world takes a lot of time and energy. So it's something that I was ready for right from the outset. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so excited for this new phase um that you're that you're embarking on yeah when it's something um that you're really passionate about right which is something you you personally are driving it forward you want to take it bring it into uh into the market into the world then yeah there's there's an inner drive that you get that you may not get from i don't know working for somebody else working working for a company um yeah that's that's very unique i'm mean, not trying to say that actually people who work for i think other companies uh, for corporates they don't have that same passion but actually, well, I mean, I had that same passion when I was in management consulting um, and I was working for my clients and I, was, I needed to get that presentation in within the within the next couple of hours to make sure I can have that convincing argument with those senior leaders in the room. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the one thing I realized during this entire journey is that actually whatever you do, whether it's your own startup, whether it's your own uh, working for someone else, um, whether it's a specific task, it could be tasks like inverting numbers into Excel. It's just to make sure that you're doing it to the best of your ability right. and you're making right. sure you're you don't it, do, it doesn't mean you have to enjoy what you do but you give everything 110 percent for it right. and right. that for me has been consistent even all the way back to when i was studying to become a doctor as well right. there's stuff in stuff when i was studying that i didn't personally enjoy but i tried to make sure i do give it the best that i can and through that you get you learn a lot and you start to enjoy what you do as well when you do something with passion Spoken like a true South Asian child. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, who, who gets, talking about studying and science. <laughs> who gets <laughs> like in grade A in every every uh, class, and then who's like the top of his class goes to med school. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Did you spend oh, your yeah, summers? Did you spend your summers <laughs> taking extra classes so you'd be well prepared or something? <laughs> I'm sure you did. Surprisingly, I didn't. But surprisingly, I did. But I wish I did now. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> so, um, I guess to conclude this section of the podcast, what, my last question is, um, when would you feel that um, 
this company has sort of, when would you feel really happy about having started this company? Rather? What I feel really happy with, I think it's, um, I think we can play, for me personally, it will be if I know whatever we've developed here is actually having an impact in the day on the people who are using it. So that for me would look like families um, telling us that actually they felt more involved with the care for their loved one more than ever before. Mm -hmm. yeah? And then also for the people that they were caring for, classically the elderly people that we're caring for, they say that actually they're more likely to take their medications. You know, They live in a much more independent life, even though they live in alone at home, they feel independent, they feel safer, and they feel happier. And for me to hear that on the back of developing Eva and this project, that would be number one, I know that we've succeeded in what we do. Oh, and then secondly, to be able to do that on a much bigger scale. So to not just focus on the UK, but to move this globally into other countries and have an impact across many other people across the world who I know are going through very similar problems. Then we'll know that, hey, that's success too for us. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Have you thought about who your potential competitors would be in this space? Yeah. So I think classically we would see is your big companies, right? Because imagine I'm talking about smart speakers. I'm already thinking about things like your Google Home, your Amazon Alexa. And we initially did explore going down that route where you can actually design new skills for Alexa and you can essentially create an app which runs on Alexa, which can do something very similar. But we got a little resistance from our customers because they don't actually like to use devices from these big companies, mainly because they have a lot of they have the views as to what happens with their information, with their voices, who owns that, a lot of issues when it comes to data privacy. Um, and for us, obviously that was a big problem on that side of things. But then also we started to think about, well, if we go down the route of using um, your Amazon Alexa Google Homes, you're very restricted by their own hardware. And we had a vision of where we wanted to take Evo in terms of number one, our own voice synthesis technology, for example, but also the hardware when it comes to, okay, the initial feedback may be as simple as uh, a button on Eva, but actually can we take that further into um, sensors in someone's home um, and actually making it a smart home device itself. And so for us, having that flexibility meant that uh, it's probably easier to keep that um, in-house and developing our own hardware. So that's one way I see kind of our competitors. Other competitors on the other side will be voice apps, right? Okay. Voice sharing apps and classically communication apps, um, which was things even as simple as WhatsApp, you know, sending voice messages in WhatsApp, everyone does it, you and I do it. Um, and for us was, okay, well, can an elderly person get, use their, start using their phone and start using WhatsApp? And when we started asking that question of the elderly people in these care homes, who a lot of these guys have problems with their own independence, they have a lot of problems um, using mobile phones as well. Access to technology is huge. So we wanted to make that side of things for them as simple as possible, where they they don't need to unlock a phone, they don't need to click on the WhatsApp, they don't need to type in the click the record button or type in a message to send to send uh, to send back to their family. Right, right. So Ishan, I think this is a good time to take a break and put a cap on the first part of our podcast episode. It's been really interesting and I, I had no idea about many of the things that we spoke about and I hope that this conversation was useful to our listeners as well. I want to learn more about the wearable devices uh, industry from you because there are so many big players in this space. We, we read a lot about how major companies which shall not be named currently are investing in, in this space. And uh, yeah, so I want the inside scoop on that. I also want to know how things are different in London 
compared to how it is in the states because i'm i'm sure you have an idea of both of them uh let's also maybe talk about how we can compare and contrast what's happening in developing countries compared to what's happening in europe uh yeah so there's still a lot more to cover which we can do in part 2 until then everyone who tuned in thank you so much for listening this is guest of honor and i'm your host nimisha sarath signing off